Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is May 12th, 2022. What you are about to hear is a webinar we held earlier today entitled The Weaponization of Israel-Palestine in U.S. Elections Campaigns, featuring political strategist Rania Batrice, journalist Peter Beinart, and president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, Lara Friedman. You will hear references to resources that we shared with the audience during the webinar. You can find the full list of resources with links on our website, www.fmep.org. Come to the site and look for today's webinar in our event index. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, welcome. Hello. Uh, I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm very glad to welcome you to today's discussion entitled The Weaponization of Israel-Palestine in U.S. Elections Campaigns. Some quick housekeeping. The format, as always, is going to be a conversation between me and the panelists. Uh, we welcome the uh, questions from the audience. You should put those into the Q&A box, not the chat box. I won't be checking the chat box. Um, welcome. We are now streaming live on Facebook. Hello, friends on Facebook. Um, we will also be putting into the chat box, my colleague Sarah Ann behind the scenes will be putting in useful links, bios, articles, whatnot. You should keep an eye on that. And in terms of accessibility, we have put the live transcript um, option up there for those who need to or who wish to read this as we go and see all the fun typos that they make in real time as they do the closed captioning. Um, so with that, very quickly, I want to introduce our panelists who largely need no introduction. Um, I am just thrilled today to be joined first by Rania Batrice. Rania is an organizer, a communications and legislative strategist, a mediator, and an advisor to elected officials, candidates, and nonprofits, both domestic and around the globe. Welcome, Rania. Um, and we are also joined by Peter Beinart, who is at the Newmark J School and CUNY Graduate Center. He is an editor at large for Jewish Currents, MSNBC political commentator, and of course, a fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. They both have much longer and incredibly impressive bios. My colleague will put those links into the chat, as well as their Twitter handles and other interesting things. Um, before we get into the substance today, I want to take a moment to acknowledge uh, that Palestinians around the world, in fact, pretty much every person I know, um, is in mourning today. Yesterday, Shireen Abu Adle was killed while doing her job reporting the news from the West Bank um, by what multiple eyewitnesses have attested unequivocally was an intentional shot by an IDF soldier. Shireen was one of Palestine's greatest reporters. She dedicated herself to journalism in order to tell Palestinian stories and raise their voices. Through her work at Al Jazeera, she appeared in Palestinian homes and homes across the Arabic speaking world. And here I wanna quote a friend of ours, the writer and analyst Tariq Bakoni, who wrote, Shireen was a quote, brilliant woman who, re who reported truth to power. She was a model journalist for a whole generation of Palestinians particularly those of us who grew up in exile, unable to return. Um, speaking as someone who's followed Israel-Palestine issues for years, speaking for the foundation, we are familiar with the pattern of the Israeli government and Israeli military engaging in denial, deflection, gaslighting, blaming Palestinians for their own deaths, like the Israeli government official who yesterday described Palestinian journalists as being, quote, armed with cameras, implying it sounded like that Palestinian journalism is a form of terrorism and Palestinian journalists are, by extension, legitimate targets. 
We remember, we are watching, we are documenting, and we will continue to use our platform to elevate and center Palestinian voices speaking about the myriad forms of violence Palestinians suffer under Israeli apartheid. And today, especially, we want to tell our Palestinian partners, friends, and audience that we share in your sorrow. And we stand, sorry, I'm breaking, breaking up. We stand with you in demanding justice. So with that, uh, the title of today's session is the weaponization of Israel-Palestine in US election campaigns. Um, so we have today, Rania and Peter, we're gonna jump into this. I first wanna say for folks who don't know what we mean by the term weaponization, and we got some questions about that when we advertised today's event, I wanna make really clear what we're talking about from the outset, what I'm talking about. Israel and Palestine have long played an outsized role in US politics and elections, and with respect to both incumbents and challengers, candidates' views on issues like aid to Israel, the status of Jerusalem, settlements, the two-state solution, sympathy for Palestinians and Palestinian rights are actively collected and elicited by media outlets, activists, advocacy groups, and these views are then used as levers to mobilize financial and political support for chosen incumbents and challengers, and as sharp-edged weapons to attack the opponents for allegedly being anti-Israel or anti-Semitic or tolerant of anti-Semitism, or even as being allegedly supportive of terrorism. That in a nutshell is what weaponization means in this context. And to be clear, the weaponization we're seeing isn't new. We saw this in the 2018 midterm campaigns. We saw it with issues related to Israel-Palestine weaponized in things like the Stacey Abrams race in Georgia, Andrew Gillum in Florida, Cynthia Nixon in New York, and Scott Wallace in Pennsylvania, just to name some outstanding 2018 examples that have been well-documented. And last, I'll say for folks who follow my work on Twitter or who read my legislative roundup, you know that I track and follow this really closely, including in a Twitter thread, which my colleague will throw into the chat, that I started last month documenting articles and analyses that are focused on the role that Israel-Palestine is playing in various election races. Um, it's not conspiracy theory to say that this is what's happening. And that's one of the reasons I started this Twitter thread, so you can see it being reported in the mainstream media, um, and, and frankly, the people who are engaging in it quite proudly saying that they're doing so. So with that introduction, Let's get started. Rania, I wanna start with you. And I'm really just so happy to have you here to get your, your insights. You work with political candidates and campaigns on a range of topics, including immigration, climate change, gun violence, and yeah, foreign policy. Can you talk about the role of Israel-Palestine in the tensions between the grassroots left and the more entrenched, more conservative Democratic Party leaders and interests? And can you share with us lessons you learned about this issue from your work with Senator Sanders in his 2016 run for president? And for folks who don't know, Rania served as Iowa communications director, then national director of surrogates, and then as deputy campaign manager in that campaign. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it feels like it's getting worse. And then sometimes it feels like it's getting better, but this is not, obviously we, we all know, this is not a new phenomenon in our, in our politics. Um, sadly, it's a, I feel like it's much more blatant these days. And we're seeing, I was in a meeting earlier today where I was talking about the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that are being spent in these democratic primaries and safe democratic seats where it, and it's sort of gutting when you know children are going hungry and, and people are dying in the streets, et cetera, the, to see 
how this money is being used to silence uh, not only, but a lot of women of color, especially, which is especially offensive and, and reprehensible. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that I, I find it interesting if I can sort of put on like a political science hat and look at it from kind of a bird's eye view and be analytical. It is interesting that in the vast majority of these cases, this cycle in particular as well, I mean, past previous cycles as well, but we are looking at these millions and millions of dollars being spent by APAC and DMFI and these types of folks and not once so dmfi is democratic majority for israel Sorry. yes exactly exactly and and um you know there's some crossover between apac and, and dmfi's um membership and and involvement and, and consultants and all those kinds of things but it's just very interesting that if you if you look at the the digital ads that are being run the television ads that are being run the mailers that are going out again millions upon millions of dollars not once do they mention Israel or support of Israel or, or, you know, anti-Palestinian sentiment or any of those kinds of things, which tells me, especially from there, again, there's crossover, but DMFI, again, Democratic Majority for Israel is run by a pollster, a a very well-known pollster, and he's not a dumb man. And so to me, the fact that we're not seeing any mention in any of this collateral that's coming out tells us something. And it's to your point, this, this, I, there is kind of a divide between where the money is and the grassroots. And, and that's, I think why we're seeing the messaging the way that it is. And, you know, and then the APAC will say things like, oh no, we're not, we're not, we're not supporting candidate X because candidate Y is a Muslim. Of course not. That's not what we're doing here, which of course is ridiculous. And we all know is untrue because then we see, we see the emails that they send to their membership and it is very much Islamophobic, um, uh, xenophobic. It, it, it's, it's just very, it's, it's pretty telling. You can't, you sort of can't have it both ways. As far as Bernie goes, um, it was, it's a very interesting thing. And I know we were talking about this earlier that there's, you almost have to laugh when, when somebody's calling Bernie Sanders anti-Semitic. And, and I loved it when he said, I don't know if y'all remember this. I want to say it was in 20, maybe 2017 or 2018, he's very specifically said, being against Benjamin Netanyahu does not mean you are against Jewish people, does not mean you're anti-Semitic. And and same thing, being against the Israeli government and what they're doing does not mean you are against an entire people. Similarly to how I feel here in the United States, that, you know, I can hold my government accountable and still appreciate the people and and uh, and the country, etc. So it's it's always a very interesting thing with Bernie because, of course, he is Jewish. And and as I mentioned um, previously, one of the first conversations I had with him before I actually jo- joined the Bernie campaign in 2015 was to get a, a sense of where he was on Israel Palestine. Um, and. And he, I appreciated his honesty at, at the time. He, he said, listen, this is an incredibly complicated situation and I'm not gonna pretend like there's an easy answer. There's not, we can all kind of agree to that. I think um, aside from taking some pretty extreme steps that we're seeing in this country, uh, folks are just not ready for, but, uh, but, but as far as sort of the geopolitical 
atmosphere and what's going on, it's not an easy answer. And in, to me, it's because there's so much money involved. So where we're seeing a grassroots um, really boiling over of support and a shift and a lot more willingness to speak openly in support of Palestinian sovereignty and just human rights in general, um, the, the money is still very much stacked against the grassroots faction. Thanks. That, that's a great place to start. And we're going to, I'm going to come back to you on a bunch of those points. Peter, I want to come to you. And, and Rania mentioned DMFI and APAC has, of course, a new PAC this year. That was big news earlier in the cycle. And, and related to that, two big stories have emerged about the new APAC PAC. And the first was the decision of that PAC to endorse a long list of Republicans who sought to overturn the last presidential election with APAC basically saying, we are a single issue organization. They are the pro-Israel candidates and that's why we support them. Nothing else matters. And the second was the, the PAC's heavy investment in a number of races, and, and Ron, you referred to a couple of them, where it is spending to defeat a progressive candidate of color, mostly women, um, over that candidate's views on Israel, even when it is not even mentioning, it's, it's effectively doing lobbying that doesn't mention Israel, but, but putting its finger on the scale by, by lobbying against them. So can you talk about APAC's entry into elections funding. Let's remember that until now, APAC has it has the letters PAC in its name, but it wasn't PAC. And if you accuse them of funding uh, any elections, you'd be called an anti-Semite who doesn't understand what the letters stand for. But now it actually has APAC. Um, can you talk about their entry into this and why they did it now and what it means? And can you talk about what these two controversies, right, the support for brazenly illiberal politicians in the name of supporting Israel, and the open engagement to defeat progressives of color. Can you talk about what that reveals about the role of Israel-Palestine in, in current electoral politics? Sure. I mean, I think there are a couple of um, larger trends here that help to understand what's happening. The first is the impact of the Netanyahu years on the Israel-Palestine debate in the Democratic Party and among progressives in general. You had for a decade, so if you're a young American, you know, Netanyahu might be the only Israeli prime minister you ever really remember, right, who was pretty much explicitly opposed to a two-state solution. So you couldn't even really suggest that the Israeli government was kind of trying to create a Palestinian state, but the Palestinians wouldn't let them, right, which was the, the line for a long time. Secondly, he was a guy who was so American that he really coded for a lot of American progressives as a kind of the Republican senator from Israel, right? So if you didn't like Dick Cheney, you didn't like Donald Trump, you weren't gonna like Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think that really had a significant impact on the evolution of people's on the left's views of Israel-Palestine. So, um, so that I think has contributed to a significant problem among ordinary Democrats um, uh, for people who want the Democratic Party to support unconditional support for the Israeli government. The second longer term trend I think has been the kind of lar larger demographic trends in the United States, that America is becoming a country with, in which white Christian people are a smaller percentage, right? It's becoming a country that's more secular, especially among younger people, and a country in which um, people of color represent a larger, a larger uh, share. And you see that in the kind of high profile personifications of people like, let's say, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who are representations, very public representations of a demographic shift that's taken place. It's an old story, right? 
immigrant, new to immigrant groups come to the United States, and then they start representing themselves politically. And so this is part of the kind of what you could say is the post-1965 wave of when the United States after 1965 really started to open its borders a bit more to people from um, the kind of global South. Um, and I think these two forces in particular have led to a, a tremendous anxiety among people who are invested in maintaining a status quo in which the US is pretty much unconditionally supportive of Israel and saw the possibility that the Democratic Party in particular could slip away. So then how do you respond to that? So one way to respond to that um, is by supporting Republicans, right? Um, because in Republic, Republican politicians are not pressured on Israel in this Palestine in the same way Democratic politicians are, because Republican politicians, their base is actually more in support of these policies, right? So that means that you need to invest in the Republican Party, even if the Republican Party moves in blatantly and explicitly anti-democratic directions, they're still your best vehicle for maintaining unconditional support. But you also need to try to shore up the, you, the this flank inside, you need to shore up unconditional support inside the Democratic Party. And so, and I think that, um, you know, it may be sound bizarre for a lot of people on the left to hear this, but I think that there were people in the APAC orbit who really thought that APAC wasn't fighting hard. That they, you know, and it sounds strange, but again, think about the debate inside the Republican Party where they're all saying like, we love Donald Trump. Now we're fighting hard. And you're like, wait, saying you weren't fighting hard before? Like you seem to be pretty fighting pretty darn hard. But I think there was a sense that they weren't fighting hard. Um, and what does that mean? I mean, I think you can see it with the ADL, for instance, in the more aggressive willingness to, to, to deploy anti-Semitism claims even more aggressively. But in the case of APAC, you can say, why were we leaving, why were we not, we have more resources at our disposal that we could be using than we are using, right? We now, because we have a system in which the in which the campaign finance system has been completely gutted, right? And so now basically people with unlimited amount of money can spend unlimited amount of money and, and they don't even often have to reveal their identities, right? Since that's the game horrifically that has been created in American politics, I think a lot of people in the APAC orbit said, wait a second, this is the game. We can play this game extremely effectively um, and we're not gonna play it. Um, and so in fact, they've started playing it. And what you see is that the progressive groups are massively out financed by um, the, the it's American, the American Jewish community is probably roughly 50-50 split between people who have a more APAC kind of view or APAC plus right wing and people who are J Street or further to the left. But if you look at the division, the, it, the resources are much more heavily concentrated on the APAC side, partly because those folks tend to be older and also because they tend to be more single issue fo focused. So that even though there's a lot of Jewish people with poor progressives who give money to a lot of causes, because they're universalistic, they're much less likely to be single issue, which means that groups like J Street don't have access to the kinds of resources. So I think what APAC decided to do was a series of kind of demonstration effects which is to say uh, in some very powerful ways to send a message. And they've done this historically throughout APAC's history. If you look at people like Charles Percy or Paul Finley going back decades, essentially to make a very, very clear statement that um, if you are a progressive candidate who is inclined because of your own moral vision, which you believe in equality under the law, it's not a crazy thing to believe in. If you're a progressive, you might believe that would be a good thing for Israel-Palestine too. And you also are hearing from some of your grassroots constituents that, you know, 
they kind of might like the idea of equality under the law in Israel-Palestine too, that it's important to make it clear to those folks that they will not likely have a political career um, uh, if they take those views. Um, and just the last point is I think because those candidates are disproportionately likely to be people of color, and women, probably just given the fact that if you are a member of a group that has been historically denied equality under the law in the United States, um, uh, you are more likely instinctively, I think, to gravitate towards a position of equality under the law and an under kind of in understanding of Palestinian, the Palestinian situation, given that Palestinians do not have equality under the law. It's not surprising that those are the folks then who I think end up being particularly on the, the hard end of this political play. Thanks. I, I think that's a really compelling explanation. I, I would add one more piece to that in, in, instinctively for me, which is we're also at sort of a tipping point in terms of the, pol the, the policies around Israel-Palestine, where if in the past there was a safe place for progressives to sit where they could wrap themselves in the warm blanket of supporting the two-state solution and having an Israeli partner that supported the two-state solution, there was, there was sort of a place to sit. As the Israeli government, particularly starting with the Bibi years, has moved further and further away from any pretense of supporting those sort of policies. And this leads into my next question for you, Peter, which is about what's happening in Michigan. You've gone to a place where there not only is pressure from the further left to just talk about rights and rule of law, but even what used to be considered the center left is being treated as, as no longer kosher. Um, and, and it's a sort of a hardening of positions here. And I look at the ADL and the hysteria around, you know, calling everything anti-Semitism. It does sort of seem like, well, if we can no longer defend Israel using good arguments and, and logic, we're just going to quash the arguments entirely by calling them anti-Semitic. Um, that's just my two cents on, on that first part. But, but feeding into that. So I want to get into the nitty gritty of one of these races, which I think we can learn a lot from. I want you to talk about this. So we are seeing an extraordinary maybe historic like mobilization by Jewish groups and leaders, the machers, including the former head of APAC, the Jewish Democratic Council, the former head of the ADL, Abe Foxman, against a sitting Jewish member of Congress, Andy Levin of Michigan, and in support of his non-Jewish opponent. And by the way, I have no dog in this fight. I don't know anything about the local politics. I'm not endorsing anyone. But this mobilization on this campaign is not about Michigan politics. This mobilization is explicitly and publicly in retribution for, for Andy Levin's mildly progressive, which I think is the, the most honest way to describe them, mildly progressive views on Israel-Palestine. Um, and when I say explicitly and publicly, I'm not exaggerating, and I wanna quote, in, in endorsing Levin's opponent, Abe Foxman wrote a piece in one of the Detroit papers this week in which he accused Levin, who is part of the Levin family dynasty, Carl Levin, Sander Levin, he accused Levin of using, quote, his Jewishness and respected political name as cover for softness on Israel and anti-Semitism, uh, which is kind of mind boggling. Um, so Peter, yeah, you, you can look it up. Uh, someone, I think we'll put that link in the, the chat. Um, it, that, that particular article is behind a paywall, but you can read about that article in Jewish Insider and the foreword. So, Peter, can you talk about what this particular race, which seems to be a microcosm of a lot of things, including a battle between APEC and, and J Street, can you talk about what this re race reveals about Israel-Palestine and current politics, including with respect to the growing gap between Jewish political and community organizations' views on Israel and what you alluded to before, the views of at least you know 50% of progressive Jewish Americans? Um, and if you want to add into that, because we're now talking about a sitting member of Congress, 
I, I, you just wrote a really great piece, which I think Sarah Ann can throw into the box um, on Tom Malinowski. Um, it was entitled How a Defender of Palestinian Rights Lost His Way. And your conclusion on that one is that Malinowski is not the problem. He's a poignant illustration of the problem, which is that even people in Congress who understand the severity of Israel's human rights abuses cannot challenge them without imperiling their political careers. So that seemed to dovetail nicely with the Andy Levin question. Yeah, I think Andy Levin is an interesting person to contrast with Tom Malinowski, actually. What, the reason I wrote about Tom Malinowski was he was someone who worked at Human Rights Watch for a decade, while Human Rights Watch was calling for repeatedly, and he was lobbying for conditions on US military to Israel. And then he got to Congress and he uh, opposed all uh, conditions on US military to Israel. I think that um, what to me is poignant about uh, Congressman Levin's position is I think he has the, he has had the, um, ill fortune, if I can put that maybe in these slides, of actually um, having learned something uh, um, uh, because he went to uh, Israel-Palestine with J Street. And so he saw things for himself. Um, and as I think all of us know here, um, if you go to Israel on a kind of APAC trip, the kind of trip has also been the norm inside the American Jewish community, um, you will, you, you will, basically hear people talk incessantly about Palestinians, but you won't actually talk to Palestinians or hear from Palestinians or see what their lives are like. And, and that's, um, that produces a certain kind of response, perhaps analogous to going to spend, you know, to American cities, talking to members of the um, police forces and, and white people about race and policing, you'll get a certain perspective. Um, but J Street, to its credit, when it takes folks, it actually actually also takes them to meet some Palestinians um, in the West Bank and, and, and hear from them about what it's like to live for your entire life without like basic rights, like citizenship, free movement, due process, the right to vote. And, and I think we've seen consistently that the members of Congress who go on those trips are shaken by those experiences. Um, uh, and then those members of Congress have a really big problem because how the heck do they go and try to translate the, the, what they've seen and the moral indignation that it is outrage that is produced rightly in, in Washington politics. And we've seen a pattern in which those members of Congress have gotten in trouble. If you remember the situation for instance, of Hank Johnson, the member of Congress from, from Georgia, he went on one of these trips and tried to speak about it. Um, and because his, 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 his statement about settlements were interpreted, I think, in, you know, in very bad faith as anti-Semitic, basically, he had a huge political problem on his face. So I think, it, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Congressman Levin actually, I think, I think because of why he's not, you know, his father and uncle were not that progressive on this issue. Um, um, but he has become more progressive. He's certainly not not radically progressive, he doesn't support equality under the law, um, but he does support the idea that the United States should try to push Israel a bit towards, um, towards the idea of restraining settlement growth and maintaining the possibility of a Palestinian state if that's still possible. And I think that, um, again, I think we are in a moment where APAC and DMFI are interested in demonstration effects particularly after I think the, the Jamal Bowman victory over Elliot Engel, which was, which was uh, worrying to them. And the, and the shift, remember the shift last year during the, the war in Gaza uh, and the fighting across Israel-Palestine, which I think showed that there had been a shift in public opinion. And I also think perhaps, I don't have evidence for this, but that it is, it might be considered particularly problematic to have a guy named Levin, right? Uh, who everybody knows is Jewish, basically taking these progressive views because it does make it, uh, a little bit harder to then say it's all being fueled by anti-Semitism. Now, you know, we have found that um, the organized American Jewish groups 
do have a remarkably flexible understanding of anti-Semitism in that they actually seem to often think that, um, that some of the greatest purveyors of anti-Semitism in the United States are Jews themselves, which is complicated. Um, um, and I think it goes to this, to the kind of the absurdity of the claim that you, the quote you gave from a Foxman, right? Which is that Sandra Levin is, is using his Jewishness to not be supportive enough of Israel as if the, um, the, 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 the definition of Jewishness itself must be to support whatever the Israeli government wants, right? Evidently, A. Foxman is not conversant with the fact that for, you know, 2,000 years, the, 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 in, the mainstream interpretation of the Talmud was there should not be a Jewish state, right? But, the, but, but this is, a, a, the problem is that we have, according to polling now, maybe 20, 25% of American Jews who don't support a Jewish state, but would prefer an equal state. And so I think having a member of Congress who could give voice to that, that the, the, even to anything like that position, to a remotely progressive position, is something that's, that would be problematic. So maybe that's part of the reason that you have this particular focus. Well, and, and to back that up, um, I think we're going to throw it into the chat. There was a, an email that was released um, in, I want to say, March from the former head, the former president of APAC, who said that Andy Levin was, quote, arguably the most corrosive member of a Congress, member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is a Quite, quite, quite a statement. Um, Rania, I want to come back to you. So, so Peter was just talking about the primary battle underway in Michigan and some of the, some of the dynamics around that. Can you, can you talk about that race if you like, but also some of the other races? Um, there was just a primary held in Ohio where Israel-Palestine was central. We have, I mean, I, I'm not sure everyone probably on this call understands the, the degree to which Israel-Palestine truly has been weaponized in races that you would think would not have anything to do with Israel-Palestine. You know, North Carolina, Michigan, Ohio, you, you know the list. Um, can you talk about some of those? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in Ohio in particular, in this um, newly drawn district or redrawn district that just they just had their primary last Tuesday. Um, and, you know, the DMFI came in very strong and very hard in the special election on that same race last late last year or mid last year, whatever the, um, and so it was, it was almost like a, um, a repeat attempt here. Right. And, and I think the thing that's, that's most offensive in all of this is, is people coming in and buying seats. I don't care who it is, you know, I don't care who it is. That's just at the very base level <clears throat> there's a whole argument to be made for campaign finance reform just for that. That's not what we're talking about now. Maybe we'll have another conversation later, but it really very much was exactly what Peter was just talking about, exactly what you've been talking about too, Laura, just that it is big, big, big money coming in for and against, you know, candidates without a single, single mention of of Israel or Palestine. There wasn't a mention in Ohio of Israel Palestine. Again, same thing happened in, in the special election last year too. No mention, um, but they came in hard and fast. I mean, I think they came in with $2 million in the last month during the special election last year, um, even more so this time as well. And so it, it, it's, it, it's intellectually disingenuous at best to say that it's about anything else than Israel Palestine, but they're not that's not what we're talking. That's not what they're talking about in the campaigns. The thing that makes it really uh, difficult is is sort of the behind the scenes things that that come about that you both talked about. Everything becomes anti-Semitic. I mean, you can't even talk about supporting 
sovereignty and, and self-determination without somehow being called anti-Semitic, which the thing that's infuriating about that is some of those same people that are having the, that, that are saying those things are the same people who I'm not even kidding you will call me and ask me how to be a better ally to indigenous communities or how to be a better ally to black communities. Cause I do a lot of that work too, but it is, it is, it is exactly what we've all been talking about, but for Palestine. And, and it's the same exact people that are calling and asking me these questions, but then see seeing me as a human being because I'm Palestinian, um, because because of the the work that I do, and, and for me and for a lot of people, I know for Mina Turner in Ohio, for example, she spoke very very clearly about being for human rights everywhere and for justice and equity everywhere and for everyone. How can we not all get on board with that? I, I it's really mind boggling. But I will say they have done an impeccable job of of weaponizing just exactly what what you've been saying weaponizing this issue so we are we become pitted against each other rather than just simply seeing each other as human beings who just want to live our lives um so i got really excited there <laughs> apologies but but yes i mean i just think it's they they did it last cycle they're doing it again this cycle and it and it's i think they've found a recipe for lack of a better term a recipe that works because as i mentioned earlier on the grassroots level, we just don't have we don't have the funding that that um, some of the establishment more established and establishment groups have. So then it becomes this like, you know, huge big dollars versus the grassroots. But the other thing that happens, and we see this even with real fantastic allies of of Palestinians and and Palestinian sovereignty and rights, where they're with us on the issues, but are terrified to speak out because of the retribution, because of being called anti-Semitic, because of the money that's gonna potentially be spent against them. I mean, and again, Andy Levin, perfect example. I mean, he's he is paying the price for just like you said, a very minor shift, <laughs> you know? It's not like he's out there doing any, you know, he's not introducing um, legislation necessarily. He's He, is, he saw some things, um, that we all know. I mean, I, I literally got a call last week from a friend of mine who was about to enter into the West Bank and she saw all of the like enter at your own risk signs and was like, oh my God, am I going to get killed here? And I'm like, well, well, that's what they want you to think. Just go. <laughs> you know. And and she called me when she got up back on her stage. She was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I was like, I, I know, I know. But this is, you know, it's the propaganda that continues to just be perpetuated. And anytime I feel very strongly about this and, and maybe I'll get hate mail, but what's new? I, every time there is a, 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 a outcry of sympathy for Palestine or Palestinians, that propaganda machine just starts churning. And, you know, and Shireen is the perfect example. They're already, we saw actually DMFI, I don't know if y'all saw that tweet, DMFI tweeted, who owns Al Jazeera? on the day that this that her murder was announced i mean who does that who does that and i it shouldn't matter it should not matter she's a journalist period she's an american citizen too and, and i just i hope everybody will let that sink in i hope everyone will let that sink in that when people are wrapping themselves in the american flag and patriotism and all that other bs those same people are turning their back on an american citizen who is doing her job who was murdered yeah, I I, can, I, no, go ahead, Peter. Yes. 
Right, because I think the, the, the question is, um, is American citizenship actually something that actually applies to all people who, who have that, piece, that document and, and live in the United States, which is, we know that there's a contest in the United States right now for what actually the notion of citizenship is. That's one competing notion. The other competing is that citizenship is essentially an, a, a kind of racial, ethno-religious category, right? It's the only true citizens are let's say white Christians or maybe white Judeo-Christians, right? That's the Trumpist view. And so I think you see an extension of that view in the notion that any Palestinian, even if they happen to have US citizenship, is not actually a US citizen because they fall outside of this kind of white Judeo-Christian structure, which is, I think ironically, or you know, uh, actually maybe not ironically, is actually in some ways takes the Israeli notion of citizenship Right, because in Israel, even if you are, even for those minority of Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, because this is a state who's who that, that very explicitly is built on serving and privileging the J Jews over anybody else who happens to live there, right? You have an ethnically defined notion of citizenship in Israel. And so in some ways, what I think you see DFMI doing, whether they're recognizing or not, is actually taking an Israeli notion of citizenship and, all, and kind of, and, and, and making it their model for American citizenship. And, and I, uh, so I think this is, this is what's at play here. And it's why um, this is, uh, why it's so, it's, I think, so disturbing. And I will just add to that real quick. I'm so sorry. I am. I'm first generation American. Both my parents immigrated. They're both Palestinian. I was born here. I have. I was born an American citizen. And my American passport means nothing when I go back there. Nothing. So. And, and, and I would say, I mean, the, the issue of, you know, whether or not the U.S., how the U.S. feels about it, this isn't new. I mean, we've the challenge, you know, when when an American Israeli is killed in a terror attack, it becomes an American foreign policy issue. When a Palestinian dies in the West Bank after being stopped by the IDF and is you know, nearly 80 years old, it becomes a, essentially a footnote pretty quick because it's just, it is, that's how, that's how it is. And it really does raise questions about how the US views citizenship. Um, but I want to pick up on something else, going back, Ronya, what you were saying, you know, this idea of the outside money coming in. I think it's just worth noting. I, I wanted to pull this up, and I think my colleague will put something into the chat. You had a, a member of Congress, um, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, actually commenting on this issue of endorsements from the Progressive Caucus. And what she said was, we're looking, one of the things we're looking at to do, sorry, the other thing we're really looking at is do we need to have some kind of change in endorsement based on whether somebody accepts this kind of giant PAC money, whether it's from crypto billionaires or whether it's from DMFI, referring to exactly what you're talking about in a few races where basically those are the two main sources of funding. And a lot has been written about that. And I think it's important to point out that her statement was immediately attacked by Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL as singling out pro-Israel groups, which based on the framework of the code for anti-Semitic. So even talking about the phenomenon and questioning whether it's right, you know, there's that, that upping the ante to say, you can't even have that conversation. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not paranoid to think that's happening. But Rania, I wanna, I have another question for you. And, and this one is, I think a little, I wanna, I wanna try to ask this in the most nuanced way possible because it's, I, I don't know the answer. So there, there's a long history of politicians of color supporting Israel, people like Hakeem Jeffries and Greg Meeks. Today though, what we're seeing is what I have referred to in the least catchiest I've ever coined, the Richie Torresization of progressive politics. And that is where you are, 
faced with increasingly progressive grassroots and increasing number of candidates whose progressivism extends even marginally to Israel-Palestine, we see pro-Israel organizations and funders and many centrist Democrats who align with them rally around and push to greater prominence politicians and candidates of color who are maybe awesome progressives except on Israel, right? And, and that's where you get people like Richie Torres in New York and Chantal Brown, who's now a candidate in Ohio. So can you talk about this? I mean, it is a really complicated thing to address because again, these may be people who are fantastic politicians, highly representative, deeply progressive on everything but Palestine, but the but Palestine is, is why this is coming to the fore right now. Can you talk about this phenomenon and its implications for progressive politics and organizing in the future? And, and can you talk about what these two trends, on the one hand, you've got this growing grassroots support for Palestinian rights, and particularly for communities of color that we've talked about already. And on the other hand, the growing prominence and success of candidates of color um, for whom progressive except on Palestine is a defining position, right? In their candidacy and in their, in their, in their you know, officialdom. Can you talk about that, what that pretends for the future of Israel-Palestine in US politics? Yeah, I, I think, well, for, I just want to say something real quick that I think is interesting that we touched on briefly at the top, but just that APEC did endorse 109 Republicans who have promoted, you know, wanted to overturn the election, were supportive in some way of the insurrection, um, you know, were spread the big lie, et cetera, et cetera. 109 is not an insignificant number. And so the thing that is infuriating to me as somebody who is a lifelong progressive and has taken a lot of beatings for it, quite frankly, is this idea that you can label yourself a progressive. And I honestly, if I'm being really honest, I hate labels, but you can label yourself a progressive and still with a straight face, take that money. Somebody mentioned Valerie Fushi in, the, in North Carolina in the, in the Q&A. And, you know, she literally is, is wrapping herself in that progressive banner and saying things like, oh, I can't be bought and all of that kind of stuff. Yet her money is predominantly her, her fund that, that her campaign is raising is predominantly being bundled by APAC. I mean, like two thirds or something nutty like that. And they're putting the PAC money in on the, and the IE independent expenditure side as well. So it, I, I'm I'm over this like we're gonna have it both ways thing, so that's one thing. But on the Richie Torreses of the world, I just honestly he's been an enigma to me since he was running. If I'm being really really true, and I actually I will I will tell this story. I tried to get in touch with him because I am still convinced that he's never actually spoken to a Palestinian person ever. Because how can you, how can you have, how can you be so demonizing and, and um, just, just shallow and, and how he talks about Palestinian people with, if you've ever spoken to, I'm not even saying go, go to the West Bank. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying like, sit down and have a conversation with a real life person and tell me that you still feel that way. So I do think that there's, there's some of that. There's sort of like a not knowing any better, which doesn't excuse him or anybody else, quite frankly. But then I also think there is a um, hedging, if you will, of people who, who do know better, but they don't want to get themselves into trouble and they also want that money. 
They want that money in their campaign because I'm going to be really honest as an operative, it's very hard to run against that. It's very, very hard in our progressive side. And, you know, there's a lot of really amazing things that came out of the grassroots and there's some fantastic organizations fighting the good fight. But even those organizations that have some money, we're seeing the cycle like drastically being outspent. So I, I, I think that there's, it's, it's, it's not just one thing. Um, I do think there is, I'm going to use this word again. I think, I do think there's a lot of intellectually disingenuousness that go, is involved here out of the fear, which I, you know, I get it. It's scary. It's scary to get, have people come after you. It's scary to be called anti-Semitic. It's all those things are terrifying, but I also am sort of in this place in life, I guess, where I'm like, find your backbone, you know, don't, don't come talk to me about justice and equity and then skulk off in a corner somewhere because it gets a little tough. Can I just jump, jump in on that? Uh, Absolutely. um, I mean, I can't look inside people's souls. I mean, I think obviously one can make an argument that for some people, um, given that APAC and these groups desperately realized they had a desperate need for people who had progressive credentials, but would be support, unconditional support for Israel, or particularly people of color, that, that people, some people might have realized that that wasn't a bad career path. But I also think that there are, there are folks who are, who are sin- totally sincere. Um, the sincerity, I think, a, a, a comes from isolation from Palestinians and not having actually seen the realities to the ground. And I think it also comes, and this is, I would say, the most poignant for me, I think it gen- also comes from the fact that people make genuine connections with Jews, with American Jews who they develop close relationships with. They're told about the Jewish story of historic suffering and oppression. And they're told about that story in a way that the kind of the, the bottom line of it is, and you need to support Israel no matter what it does, because that's our only way of feeling safe. And so you are helping us feel safe by supporting Israel no matter what it does. And people, and you know, you 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 know people, you you do get a sense of that, of that trauma and that suffering, which of course is very has been very real. And so, uh, and there is still anti-Semitism. And so I think people feel good about saying, you know what, I'm going to defend the Jewish people and make sure that they're not oppressed as they were before. But of course, the, the, the terrible irony of this, right, is that it doesn't actually make Jewish people safe in the long run to oppress Palestinians um, uh, because violence begets violence um, and hatred bege- and, 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 and also because if you believe if, if if what was wrong about oppressing Jews is that all people have infinite dignity uh, and infinite value, and that oppressing them is wrong regardless of who they are, it is not a validation of the Jewish experience to then support unconditional support for a state that denies Palestinians the most basic rights. It's actually, I would argue, a kind of a desecration of that experience, right? But I think this is the story that people like Richie Torres are told by their Jewish friends and supporters. And unfortunately, um, th- that, that's the story they bought into. And to me, it's a, it's a painfully ironic way of interpreting uh, the, the Jewish story. And I would add, it's a story that they're being told emphatically by by people who um, claim moral authority in defining what is right and wrong on this, like the ADL. And here I would I would commend to people the interview that appeared in the New Yorker, I believe, yesterday, with uh, the head of the ADL, Mr. Greenblatt, um, which is an extraordinarily revealing interview. I'm not I'm not sure it came out the way he expected it to, but. Um, it, it reveals just extraordinary moral inconsistencies and, and contradictions, and, and I would argue some, some pretty clear exceptionalism as excuse for racism. 
Um, but you know, that's, that's who you're going to just tell you what, what is the right position to take. Um, and I'd also say for folks who don't read the Jewish insider every day, and I strongly recommend reading Jewish insider every day, if you want to know more about what's happening, which is not particularly progressive. Um, generally when I look at the statements made by candidates and they express very much what Peter is just saying, but they also very often express it in terms of, of their own Christian faith. There's an evangelical and faith-based piece of that, which I, I can't, I think can't be um, dismissed. Uh, it's a, they come together nicely. Speaking of which, um, so Peter, I want to come back to you and I want to ask you something else, sort of more nuanced. So I'm, I'm going to describe two phenomena for you and ask you to talk about the implications of, of how they are connected. So on the one hand, you have an ascendant right wing that is philo-Semitic. And when I say philo-Semitic, I mean, they fetishize Judaism and Israel. It's not about, you know, fighting anti-Semitism. It's about fetishizing Judaism and Israel. I think many of us believe that philo-Semitism is not the opposite of anti-Semitism. It is a form of anti-Semitism. So they are philo-Semitic and they they frame their, their love of Jews in terms that are anti-Palestinian, greater Israel supporting, extreme right-wing agenda in terms of the way they love Jews. People like Mike Pompeo, for instance, who like to use Jerusalem as a backdrop for his, his morality play. Um, and, and, and you know, then you have, on the other hand, ostensibly liberal organizations like the ADL, which is, I say ostensibly liberal, it's liberal pretty much on everything else, um, which again is committed to civil rights, promoting you know what's good in in the world, fighting racism, except it's also promoting the explicit conflation between anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel and anti-Zionism. Talk about how those two connections, those two those two phenomena connect, and how those agendas um, feed each other. Because when I look at some of these races and I see progressives weighing in, calling a candidate anti-Semitic. I look at Andy Levin now, I'm thinking if he's reelected, this primary fight means that he will be treated as an anti-Semite by both parties, right? It's like they, they've painted this with him. Progressives have colluded in that and given that to, 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 to Republicans. It's just weird. Um, can you talk about that? Sure. So I think to go back to something I was mentioning before, I mean, I think we are in the midst of a kind of a global struggle, or at least a struggle in many, many countries between two different visions of citizenship, a, a kind of a, a civic notion of national identity in which anyone who lives inside the, the, the borders of a country deserves to be treated equally. And that, that the traditional hierarchies around race, gender, religion should be, should be gradually eroded um, uh, to create greater genuine equality for all people. And a vision that in fact, at the core of national identity are a series of hierarchies, racial, religious, ethnic, gender hierarchies that America is ultimately a white Christian nation. France is a white Christian nation. Um, in Israel, in many ways, I really do think for people on the right uh, who have a vision of a kind of ethnic notion of citizenship, whether it's Marine Le Pen in France or, or Donald Trump or Mike Pompeo in the United States, Israel offers a certain kind of model of how to do that. It has certain democratic features inside the green line, but it also has an immigration policy, which is exactly the kind of immigration policy that, that, that Ann Coulter and Mike Pompeo want in the United States, which is an immigration policy designed to maintain a certain demographic majority and very, very clear and quite brutally enforced hierarchies um, uh, between different ethno-religious groups, in this case, between Jews and Palestinians. And so the irony of the Jewish situation, right, which I think you can see most clearly in the ADL, 
is on the one hand, the ADL wants to defend Israel because since the late 1960s, it was not like that before, but at a certain point in the 60s and 1970s, the ADL became an Israel defense organization. So its vision of what was best for the Jewish people was essentially to defend Israel against all criticism and support unconditional US support for Israel's version of, eth of, an, of a kind of ethno-nationalist state. On the other hand, the ADL also realizes, feels very strongly that Jews in the United States do not want to live in that kind of ethno-nationalist state, right? They are comfortable with a, a Jewish state, a state of kind of what B'Tselem is called Jewish supremacy, but they do not want to live in a country of Christian supremacy or a Christian state in the United States. I mean, if America allocated land the way that Israel allocates land, in which basically almost all the land is controlled by a body that devotes 10 of its 22 seats, the Israel Land Authority, to the Jewish National Fund. Imagine an explicitly Christian organization in essentially in control of most of the land in the United States, right? Jonathan Greenblatt would never sleep at night, right? So, but this is the fundamental contradiction, right? Is essentially say that Jonathan Greenblatt wants Palestinians to accept certain things that he would never, ever, ever uh, allow American Jews to accept in the United States, right? This is the fundamental inconsistency, I think. Whereas I think Mike Pompeo is actually much more ideologically consistent, which is that I think my, my, Mike Pompeo wants um, a, a country with clear legal hierarchies in the United States, and he supports it in Israel too. His position is actually consistent. I think it's fundamentally illiberal, and I think I would argue inhumane, but it's consistent. Jonathan Greenblatt's problem is that his he has to code switch when he goes back and forth between the two societies. Well, my, my point, I, I agree with that. I think that you said that beautifully. My point would be also that by doing that code switching, he is inadvertently undermining the entire progressive agenda that the ADL supports in the US. I mean, he is handing this issue. He's essentially legitimizing the use of Israel and claims of anti-Semitism, the use of these as, as, as weapons against progressives. And that is um, quite extraordinary. It's been extraordinary watching it, you know, sort of blossom in the past decade. Not only, I would say not only, just not only Israel, across the world, because if you have to destroy the International Criminal Court because you're worried that the International Criminal Court might hold Israel accountable, then you're actually also undermining an institution that we would want to use to hold Russia accountable, right? And if you are going to, um, if let's in, in the French election, if Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the left-wing candidate, had ended up in, the run, in, in a runoff against Marine Le Pen, he would have been, seen, because he's a critic of Israel, he would have been seen as just as anti-Semitic as her. And so in the groups like the ADL, the agency would not have been able to oppose Marine Le Pen because they would not be willing to choose a, 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 a critic of Israel. Just like they say that, that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is the equivalent of AOC or Rashida Tlaib, they are actually not able to oppose white nationalist anti-Semites if that requires them supporting people who are critics of Israel. Uh, yeah, um, beautiful. That I, I, okay, so my colleague just put a wonderful article of yours up into the chat, which I highly recommend. There's been a great article, bunch of articles. We're getting to the end. There's some questions in the chat. We're not going to get to all of them. We've we've hit a few of them. Um, the questions will be shared in writing with the panelists, so they will have those to inform their thinking. There's one question in the chat about how you know people who are attending this this webinar can talk about the issues we talked about today without being called anti-Semites. 
and I got to say, you know, that that's part of the reason we do an event like this. You know, I encourage people to share the video of this, this, this webinar, you know, people can watch for themselves and make decisions for themselves. It's also the reason that, you know, Peter writes the articles that he writes. It's the reason I have the thread going right now, which my colleague put into the chat before, you know, if, if the argument is that it's anti-Semitic to share articles that are talking about this, my goodness, we are even further eroding the meaning of anti-Semitism. You know, if you can't talk about it. It's sort of like fight club, you know, you you can't, you can't talk about it. Um, in this last five minutes, and I think I want to start with Peter because I want to give Rania the last word. Um, I want you to offer a point of light. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, that's not really fair, but I do. Some kind of, whether it's instances of successful reframing, effective communications, things you see on the grassroots that are happening, demographics, polling, um, you know, something to, because this has all been fairly, what we've talked about so far seems to lead ineluctably to a really bad outcome. Um, if you care about, you know, freedom, free speech, rights, Palestinian rights, all that, offer me something else. Looking forward, but this is my most honest answer. Um, as long as there is a collaborationist Palestinian authority that is making, is making keeping things quiet in the in the West Bank and allowing Israel to maintain control at low cost, I don't think that we will see a, the fundamental transformation of politics here, because you need. But we what we saw last May, and of course, I, I certainly certainly would want this resistance to be nonviolent. When there is resistance on the ground, that has ripple effects here that elevates this issue, radicalizes people in the best sense of the word because they see the violence of, of, of state oppression in Israel. And this powerful political citadel that groups like APAC and DMFI uh, have built, an earthquake starts to shake underneath that citadel. But it has to come in, the work here has to come in response, I think, to what happens on the ground. I wish it were not that case. Way in some ways it's really not fair that that should be the case, that Palestinians should have to suffer through that kind of, because the, the costs of Palestinians of, of resisting are enormous. Uh, in re, uh, but in reality, I think that is the way it happens. When people see that on the ground, that massive resistance, again, I would hope nonviolent resistance, then I think it radiates powerfully here. And it means that with all of the money that APAC has, it's ultimately not enough. But if, if, if we don't have that on the ground, I think, I fear that there are limits to how much we can change the conversation here. And Rania, to you, and, and I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, a little bit in terms of how grassroots thinking moves and whether or not it matters that Amnesty or Human Rights Watch, you know, endorse the word apartheid or, you know, talk about, talk about something that gives us something to look for and things that people can, can be hopeful about. Yeah, actually, some of exactly what you mentioned, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, that's part of what makes me hopeful. I do a lot of work with both organizations and they got a heads up before their respective reports came out. And, you know, of course, my first, I was like, y'all ready, right? Because it's going to get ugly. And the thing, one of the things that does make me hopeful is the vast majority of the um, defense of both entities actually came from Jewish leaders and Jewish led organizations. I shouldn't say the vast majority, but a lot of the vocal um, pushback on being on the anti-Semitism attacks and things like that were coming from Jewish leaders who were saying exactly what you're saying, actually. If we keep saying, if we keep calling the truth anti-Semitic, true anti-Semitism becomes uh, white noise. This, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's sort of the, that was the sentiment. And it, it really, and even an extension of that two years past, I, just because of my 
the nature of my work. I do a lot of work with celebrities and influencers and things like that. And in years past, I would get text messages or a phone call. Hey, are you okay? I know this has been a tough day or this is now it is like very vocal. They're tweeting. They're, they're still sending me the very kind messages too, but they're tweeting, they're putting their own thoughts out there. And, and to kind of go to the, to the question about what do you say? How do you talk about this? So you don't get called anti-Semitic. The truth is there is no way to do it. It's going to happen. And the, the, I find solace or whatever you want to call it, a bright light in the fact that there are these people out there who quite frankly have a lot to lose, who are still out there saying, speaking the truth and speaking up against the atrocities that we're seeing played out almost daily, if not daily. Um, and then of course, just one final thing I will say is the, the fact that I know I keep coming back to this, but I do think it's important and it does give me some glimmer of something. I will call it something later. I don't know what even to call it now, but the fact that there are these millions upon millions upon millions of dollars being spent and Israel Palestine is nowhere to be found. Actually, as messed up as this sounds, it does make me a little bit hopeful that that is not a winning message and they know it. So is that enough to hang our hats on? Absolutely not we have to then sort of build up our coalition and our capacity and all of those kinds of things. But the fact that we're seeing this, you know, at least in the last couple of cycles, I think that matters. I think that's something to, to build off of. Thank you. I appreciate both of you ending with something that, that leaves us feeling, I think that there's something to look forward to and to work on and, and, and not just educated, but a little bit hopeful. Um, we're going to end there. It's exactly five. You guys are great. We're exactly on time. Um, I want to thank Peter and Rania so much for joining me today. It's been a really um, fascinating conversation. I hope our audience has enjoyed it. I thank everyone who joined us or who's listened to, listening to it uh, via our podcast. We're very glad to share this conversation with you. Please check back at the FMEP website for a list of all the resources that were shared in the chat box, as well as announcements about future webinars and podcasts. And of course, subscribe to our podcast. We release these webinars, both as webinars and podcasts, so you can listen to it again at your leisure in your car um, or anywhere else. Um, and with that, that is the end of it. So thank you so much. We're going to end this for today. Until the next time. Bye.